listeners and welcome to PopScreen, part of the Geek Show Podcast Network. We are the Geek Show's podcast dedicated to the good, the bad and the bewildering of movies, either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I'm a filmmaker and critic for thegeekshow.co.uk and Horrified, the British horror website. And I have been joined this week by... Hi, I'm Sarah Hayton and I'm a writer and uh, sometime director. And um, cheers. Cheers. Um, I brought a little glass of wine along. Nice. Um, yeah, because uh, I'm really interested in talking about tonight's film. And where do you want to start? Well... First of all, let's consider that there is a certain risk involved in directors from non-English speaking countries making English language movies. For every Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain, there is an equal and opposite Ang Lee's Gemini Man. And on its release in 2007, Wong Kar Wai's sole Anglophone film, My Blueberry Nights, was tepidly received. Perhaps it was the middling festival reviews, perhaps it was the unconventional casting which placed jazz singer Nora Jones in the middle of a throng of movie stars, or perhaps it's just the fact that it was called My Blueberry Nights, a phrase which you occasionally have to remind yourself was considered a good title for a film by somebody once. Regardless, we at Popscreen feel it's worth disinterring and considering its rare acting role for Jones, as well as a notable cameo by wayward alt-rock chanters Shan Marshall, aka Cat Power, who has just announced a new album, a new covers album, by the way, so I'm very excited about that. Right, who's this Cat Power woman? Is she the woman who did that documentary? No, you're thinking of Werner Herzog. Uh, she... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. No, I am not. I am not. I am I, not. I have no idea who you are thinking of. Well, no, I was thinking of the woman who'd done the documentary about New York and stuff in New York. Oh, um, right. I'm, I'm sure you mentioned it recently and yeah, it was to do with... Um, like sort of pop stars in New York, and that's all I can remember, I think. We spoke a bit about Fran Leibowitz on the last show, didn't we? Who uh, is oh, a professional talker about New York, but I don't think, I can't remember talking about her. Anyway, cat power. <laughs> anyway, cat power. <laughs> yeah. This, She's this... such a great character, Fran Leibowitz, but at the same time, I'm a little bit bored. So carry on, cat power. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Cat Power has terrible. I know I'm supposed to really like, you know, friendly Brits, and I know I'm, I'm I'm continuing to talk about this person, and we have moved on from her. But how is it a thing? And like people are still like interested in it, and you're watching it, and you, and it's like, I'm sorry, how was this? How did this get made? Yeah, I, I feel absolutely the same way about Fran Leibowitz, and I, I just think New York in general is like the city that never shuts up about itself. It, it bothers me a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, like that song by Frank Sinatra, the city that never shuts up about itself. <laughs> yeah, what was it called? New York, open brackets, pack it in for a bit, mate, close brackets. <laughs> uh, New York, shut the hell up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so over your New York thing. Yeah. Um, 
Cat Power has a one scene cameo in this that you you may remember because she's very compelling on screen. She's uh, Jude Law's character's ex girlfriend, Katya, yeah. who comes back yeah. in one scene. And she, she turns up at the door. She's great. I'm surprised you're not a Cat Power fan because I think her, her music would be right up your street. I will. Yeah, and I think it's just maybe because I'm not aware of her, which is shameful but i do spend a lot of time on my own okay so cat power <laughs> is that k-a-t power uh, no it's c-a-t it's a stage name uh her Ooh, actual chan. name is chan marshall um but she's been going like since the mid 90s but she had a breakthrough around the turn of the millennium when she did her first covers album which featured like a really spooky deconstructed version of I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones among many other delights and there's actually a couple of songs by her on the soundtrack here particularly towards the start where we're in the diner uh, the opening song is Nora Jones but the stuff that's yeah, playing yeah, in the, the diner song is Nora Jones. Yeah. the okay. stuff that's playing okay. in the diner is all cat power right so I can see here she's worked with uh, Liz Fair, Sonic Youth, Eddie Vedder. So there's this, there's some, obviously she's well thought of by the great and the good. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And the album that she had out, like around the time she was making this, is called The Greatest. And she recorded it with, uh, I think it was musicians who were in Al Green's old backing band. Oh, uh, that's lovely. That's and a it lovely is, sound it, to go for. It is indeed the greatest. It is such a good album. But that's got a beautiful sound. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So around the year 2000, it was called The Covers Record, and she that's what you were talking about previously. That was the one with Satisfaction on, yeah. Every now and then she does a record of covers, and she is one of those people who can make you forget that someone else has done a song that she's covering she is very good at covers oh that's really good that's an unusual that's a rare gift isn't it it is yeah I often I like cover versions I find them interesting but there are there aren't many artists who I think are reliably good at it Johnny Cash obviously that's like oh my god yeah yeah reduce you to liquid absolutely johnny cash but have you considered the mike flowers pop quintet pop, <laughs> pop. pops it is yeah it's almost <laughs> cheating to cover an oasis song because you can't make it any worse <laughs> but it's so like oh man i love i was properly into lounge at the time and i was just like oh god this is the best thing i've ever heard Combustible so cool. Edison so and all that stuff was it? <laughs> there's so there's so many great tracks on that record. It's um and it made me think. Oh gosh, have I completely not seen a, a genre of music called lounge? Mm. And it's you know there's that and there's like all all the stuff that you get in films like um oh like sixties films and 60s like the original movies. version of Casino Royale. Yes, yeah. yeah. And um, oh, what's that? What's it called? Honestly, I'm so sorry about my memory. It is rubbish. But um, <laughs> the guy who's in it is James Coburn. Mm. And it's a comedy. It's almost, it's kind of like along the lines of Austin Powers. Oh, Our Man Flint. Yes, 
Yes, Owlman, Owlman Flint. Flint. Yeah. Yeah, and it's got that kind of type yes. music with like lots of emphasis on the triangle, and it it just made me think oh gosh is this like a whole genre of music i've kind of not noticed mm-hmm. and um and definitely worth investigating so i i heard loads of stuff by um oh lelo shuffren yeah um, yeah and lots of film soundtrack stuff and sort of almost um like i suppose it, some people would call it elevator music at the time but it just sounds so good and like encapsulating a period yeah so yeah it's anyway, weird because was... it, it's one of those things that i always associate with the mid 90s even though it is not mid 90s music it just had such a sustained comeback yeah yeah definitely it made a definite point there i was not expecting to go on a mike flowers pops tangent when we started <laughs> this i've got to admit that was that was quite low down the list <laughs> well you know happy to help <laughs> but this is the first one uh that we've done that you hadn't seen before isn't it yeah 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 um yeah i have no recollection of seeing it at the time and i think i would have remembered it because it well i don't know whether i would have remembered because it, it does have a i don't know lack of a punch mm. lack of a, an impact it's not really saying anything unique or challenging or I don't know whether I would have remembered it, and I'm not particularly a Jude Law fan, although I do like Nora Jones. See, Jude Law, I think we should say, uh, has one of the great spoonerizable names, doesn't he? <laughs> I had not considered that before, but yes, you are not yeah. wrong. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> He's got that in his corner. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I... I actually consider Jude Law a really reliable actor and he generally makes me enjoy things more. But in this, I can say, like, if I'm if I'm being kind, he sometimes remembers that his character is from Manchester. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the, probably the most obvious problem. Um, but I I don't I have this unfortunately uh, a dislike of this actor and I've never met him I don't know him he might be a perfectly lovely person but because he's associated with the lad culture of the 90s yes I really I really don't react to him very positively at all and in this I'm just thinking oh my god he's just like putting on this character that's absolutely not him because (laughs) of that lad thing of the 90s so I just couldn't believe him from from the get-go there's a whole uh, cadre of actors that i've sometimes had cause to reassess but that i just got off on the wrong foot with because when i was getting into films they were just in every single crap british gangster movie and <laughs> yeah it maybe did take me a while to come back around to jude law it didn't take me as long as it did with Reese fans who was like the face of that subgenre, and who i now think yeah, is a perfectly yeah. good actor but jesus christ he didn't have a peer in some stinkers <laughs> i don't i don't remember i mean i've probably not seen a load of his i just remember him for the romantic comedies probably of the 90s uh, and, yes and yeah that sort of time but i also i mean i've seen him do do some really good solid work absolutely I respect him yeah mm. 
Now, I did see My Blueberry Night when it came out, because at that point, I was a really big Wong Kar Wai fan. And I mean, in terms of his earlier work, I still am. I still think that there's a solid stretch from from maybe Chunking Express through to In the Mood for Love, where that is one of the hottest streaks any director's been on, in my opinion. And I was really looking forward to this. And, um, <laughs> despite the reviews <laughs> despite the reviews and it, it's funny because watching it again I don't think it's any better but I was surprised at how much of it stuck in my head so you've remembered quite a lot of quite a forgettable film bit weird that isn't it it's but I suppose when you say forgettable you're saying it's possible to forget it I have not but I could if I wanted to if you really tried harder Graham <laughs> um I'm coming at one car why from uh, uh, I've not known his films before and I, I just remember when I was at university and there were people who were crazy about one car why and used to rave about him and catch all the films and everything and get, would get VHS copies of it <clears throat> <laughs> not that That's we're dating ourselves we're about. Here, yeah <laughs> now my housemates at the time worked at blockbuster so <laughs> have, we started off with video wall and then it moved into video corner and then it turned into video annex <laughs> <laughs> we had loads of vhs stuff yeah um but i didn't get into one car at the time um it was one of those things that I always thought, oh, I really, sh- it sounds great. I should definitely watch it, watch his, watch his stuff. But now, like 20 years later, I still haven't done that, which makes me think maybe it's never going to happen. I don't know. His career path is really interesting because like his golden age was built on something that became his fatal flaw. If Shakespeare was alive today, he wouldn't be writing for EastEnders as every sort of pub boss is. He would be writing a biopic of Wong Kar Wai because it's the perfect <laughs> tragic downfall story. Oh no, what happened? Well, the thing is, he he has a very loose way of working. He likes a lot of improvisation. He doesn't like to even plan out the structure of his films before he shoots. No, what, really? Not even the structure? Nope. There is a script, but he departs from it as soon as he can. And oh, I think the, re- interesting. the reason for this was because his, I think it was his third feature, Ashes of Time, was like one of those big Wujar epics that any reasonably prominent director from that part of the world seems to like have to do at some point. And he hated it. He hated having to plan things out. He hated having to plan stunts before, you know, like months before the filming started. He hated the period setting. He just, and he never found a cut of it that really worked. He re-edited it a bit later, but the third act is still incoherent I think um so I mean is that because I can understand that because when you're a director you're making a beautiful piece of art mm. but when you're talking about the intimate details of which car you're going to use for a backflip explosion stunt it really takes away from that it like gets down to the really boring forms you have to fill in and the insurance and everything and if you're if you're like him, what's what he sounds like? He's like a very pure kind of more of an artistic person rather than pragmatic planning, you know, 
everything in its place type person. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I remember being vendors. It sort of was, yeah, but for a while it was like the engine of what was great about him because straight after he did Ashes for Ashes of Time, he did Chunking Express, which was the film that mm. broke him in the West. And Breakthrough it's one. beautiful. It's such a great film. And it, unlike a lot of improvised films, it feels ad-libbed, but in a good way. It genuinely feels like it's sort of drifting along and anything can happen next. And he shot a lot well, for it. Yeah. He cut out one subplot, which turned into his next film, uh, Fallen Angels, which is my personal favourite. And he kept going like this for a bit. But the problem is, I think, that when your whole directorial personality is based on just sort of shooting and waiting for something good to turn up, when something good doesn't turn up, you kind of don't have a strategy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it must have been quite a culture shock to be plonked in the middle of Hollywood then. Mm. And given their rigid structures of storytelling, and in particular, this was, what, what date was this? This was the 2007 or 2007, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So... It, to me it feels like an earlier film it feels like something it feels like a 90s film I don't know why I, I placed it there but it, I, I think it's, it's because well one car why broke through in the 90s and I think his aesthetic did was such a big part of defining what was cool cinematically that decade so when Globally. you see I think so yeah I would argue yeah. it was because Quentin Tarantino, when he was like at the peak of his abilities as a tastemaker, really got behind Chunking Express and promoted it in the US. So there's a mm. kind of sort of, there's a bridge there, you know. What, what I'm having to get in my head around, difficulty getting my head around, is that if he is somebody who can't quite get to grips with structure and form, Mm. how what is it that's I don't know rated by Tarantino and the and the rest because Tarantino famously plays with structure yeah yeah but I think at his best car wise films feel like they have a really surprising and inventive script like if, if you watch in the mood for love which by the way everyone should it's great you would think that was some beautiful, like intricate short story that he'd adapted. It seems so perfectly structured, but he only got it so perfectly structured by excising large parts of the material. One of which, uh -huh, uh -huh, one of which involved a man at a diner that was frequented by lonely people who'd recently been through a breakup, which, mm, you see where I'm going with this? Expand for those of us that are not. It became the oh, Jude yes. segment. <laughs> when we said Sorry, the film was forgettable, going... listeners, we were not joking. <laughs> Just in, in a matter of days. I thought you were going to go on to say another uh, one Kawhi film or a Tarantino film. <laughs> no, I, th I, I thought you were playing the comic role uh, that Simon Mayo <laughs> plays on the Radio 5 film show. But um... I can do that. I can totally be that person. <laughs> <laughs> All it takes is another glass of wine. <laughs>
One thing I was going to ask, in the mood for love, yeah. if um, you were saying that he shot a lot of material and then sort of edited it and whittled it down later, which is a nice kind of carpentry approach to things. Mm -hmm. um, just how, what, do you know what the ratio is there? Is there a lot of waste? It's a great question and I don't know. I know that it's not unusual for him to like... It's not a case of he shoots the film and then he re-edits it into two or three more films. It's not that simple, but... <laughs> it wouldn't be, no. It, it's, it's often the case that something he has cut from a film will become the seed of his next one. And in The Mood for Love, like I say, it had the, the original version of My Blueberry Nights was part of it. And his next film, 2046, was also based on material he'd cut from In the Mood for Love as well. So, you know, there's a lot is what I'm, I'm suggesting. Like there's a lot. Mm. Um, did I hear recently that about another Beatles documentary and I was surprised about the amount of um, stuff that's been shot and just kept on the shelf for ages. Yeah, and you think that's about the Beatles, who, I mean, I'm not an economist, but I think there's a market for Beatles-related stuff, right? Yeah, massively. Yes. Massively. Even just like, you know, John goes into the supermarket or just the really banal daily stuff that yeah. you get. The maddest thing about Carwise recent career, which has slowed down a lot and the films have not been as well received, which suggests that this kind of domino rally method of production where you make something and it sparks the next film, which sparks the next film, might have petered out. But the maddest thing is that in the very early days of Amazon Prime, when they were trying to launch that as a, a streaming service rather than just a place where you can order stuff, um, mm -hmm. they signed him up to do a TV series. And you think, all right, this is someone whose most recent film took seven years to make, and it's about 100 minutes long, <laughs> and you want him to make 10 hours of television every year. Not a great move, I would think. Not a great plan, no. Uh, didn't get made, yeah. surprisingly. I mean... Yeah. Mm. Um, if you... I, I mean, I, I kind of like that organic approach. That seems like a nice idea. So you, 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 this is kind of a natural approach as well. It's the same mm. approach that, you know, a sycamore tree will take so it shoots off loads of flipping keys that come floating to the ground for however many you know yards around, but only a fraction of them grow. Mm. Um, and then that's the next sort of, that's the next generation of trees. And it seems like that's the same approach that Kawhi is taking. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's probably a stage that every creative person goes to it through. It's just that you don't normally have that stage of the project when the cameras are rolling. <laughs> mm. I've, I've been trying to think of another director who makes that work more consistently. I mean, Robert Altman did it a fair bit, but the thing with Robert Altman was he could make these big sprawling three hour epics that are full of stars improvising, but he could also do a 90 minute adaptation of a two man stage play. 
And I think it's the inability to do the second bit that has put Kawhi in a bit of trouble in recent years. I don't know. I think it makes him a purer artist. I think, you know, uh, if he goes through phases, so much the better. But if he's chosen and found his like, lifelong metier, then... Well, yeah, fair point. The way it is. Yeah. Um, why is he less popular, do you think? Why has his popularity waned? I think that the most basic answer is the films weren't as good anymore. I think that My Blueberry Nights, while I do not think it's a disaster by any means, is way below the level of his Hong Kong films. I haven't seen The Grand Master, but, uh, which is the film that he did a few years after this, but I haven't heard great things. And there's also, there's also the problem that he now works so slowly that it makes him very easy to plagiarise. Like the Grandmaster is a film about Ip Man, who was the martial arts instructor who trained Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee. Yeah. And he spent so long working on the Grandmaster that by the time it got released, I think 90% of the Chinese film industry was like biopics of Ip Man. So everyone made one because he announced it so early and in the staggeringly long time it took for him to make the thing, everyone got theirs out first. I mean, there's room for him, but but he seems to not kind of engage with the rest of the industry as a functioning workspace, as a reg, as a recognised structure, as a as a recognised timetable. When he does, yeah, and and part of me kind thing. of. A, Part of me kind of admires that in this world where, like, you look at the release schedules even just two or three years down the line and it's, like, untitled Universal film, untitled Disney film. The studios are getting yeah. release dates ready before they know what the film is. So it's going to be a superhero film anyway. So It yeah, probably whatever. is, yeah. I mean, you don't have to, uh, have to so guess for very long. I know I'm not the right audience, but at the same time, come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the that's probably the antithesis of Wong Kar Wai, isn't it? Exactly. Because he's yeah. all about exploration and the slow development and growth and then, you know, uh, seeding the next project. And it's all very natural rhythms, whereas um, from what you're saying, the Hollywood is just like, OK, this is going to happen now. We'll find people to make a film at some point before then and then exactly. I don't know what it's going to be but we're going to book the schedules and it's just like Jesus Christ that's the absolute that's the industry the purest form of industry film absolutely industry. yeah and you, you would say like that whole ethos that in Hollywood the film is isn't released when it's ready it's released when it's due that has been getting worse and worse for about 20 years now and you would think staring at the nightmare-inducing unfinished CGI of Tom Hooper's cats would lead to an industry-wide realisation that this is a bad <laughs> idea. But... Absolutely. And yet, it still goes on. Yeah, absolutely. It's really sad. It, it just... I don't know, I'm trying to think of a, an appropriate comparison there of something where it's just 
I suppose like Stockaken and Waterman will be one of them where it's just literally a factory mm. that churns stuff out and all the stuff sounds the same and 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 that was you know uh probably one of the earliest examples of of that happening in the pop charts um like an actual factory and they called it a hit factory literally they would churn it out churn it out and to quote Clive that, Anderson one letter shy but never mind <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh I think there's definitely room for one car wide, but I don't feel like this film was it. Yeah, I think so. Because, I mean, aside from anything else, I, I suppose it's one of those biases that you can't get around. But when I watch his Hong Kong films, I'm not scrutinising them to see if they're a realistic portrayal of Hong Kong life, because I, I, I don't know what that would be. So I, yeah, I just accept them as they are. Whereas when a foreign director comes over to America or Britain, it becomes a sort of a sport to try and work out if they've got it right, as if there's like one version of the country that you have to have to do. And it's yeah, like... and I think that's a mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I feel like his in in particular. I've known it. I've sort of seen. We we see it in directors that try to from abroad that try to slot themselves into the Hollywood rigid really rigid structure and, and mm. formalities and they sort of you know they manage okay or they you know there's differences that we can take the piss out of or uh, with a little bit more understanding sort of perceive what's actually happened and I think with one car why um I, I feel like he's much more delicate and sensitive than that and this is just this has just hampered any I think you need you need certain conditions to grow a beautiful orchid and these conditions that he needs as an artist just weren't met. Wong Kar Wai is just every type of plant in your world, isn't he? <laughs> he is though. He gives out light and he gives out beauty. Um, but if <laughs> you can't, you can't do that if you hamper him in any way. It won't be produced. It's like these. It's like these plants that just only grow every once every twelve years after a forest fire or something, and mm. they're the only thing that'll grow under these particular conditions. And I think it's the same with him. It just he's not going to flourish in that environment. So this is probably Hollywood going, "Oh yeah, he's really cool. Let's get let's get him." You know, everybody's yeah. rating him. But oh, by the way, while you're here, you will need to do this, 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 and one car wise, just like. Yeah, I can't do that. I'm afraid I'll I'll do my best, obviously, but that's not going to happen. Is that there? There was a recurring thing in the American reviews from the time that I read, um, where they said, "Oh, it's it's a very," and they said this as a criticism. It's a it's a very romanticized version of America, isn't it? It's not very realistic. And it's like, you know what? I think he knows. I think he is broadly aware that this movie about how blueberry pie is a metaphor for life choices is not exactly Taxi Driver. I think he knows that. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely not Taxi Driver at all. Um, I don't know. I just uh, and it's it. It's not like it's not like there's not not stuff happening, and it is quite picaresque and mm. which you know by nature is a rambling thing but 
But let's talk about let's talk about some of those stops on those journeys because it feels like yeah, yeah. as Norva Jones's character Lizzie travels across America, she makes a point to stop and work at every bar that has an Oscar-winning actor as a regular customer. Yeah, which is a very thorough research on her part. Defol, yes. The first one, and I think like the, the best stretch of the film by a long way, is the bit with Rachel Weiss and David Strathern. Oh God, that drove me flipping insane, that bit. I know David Strathern, I, I like him. I do mm. like it. And I like Rachel Weiss, but I just Who thought doesn't? that this this whole thing is it just feels like really burnt, like overdone. Um, like left out in the sun too long um, mm. and uh, trying to uh, like somebody who doesn't live in America thinking oh well what what do two characters in America sound like well one's probably an alcoholic and one's probably um, you know I'm going to come down on her because she might or might not have had an affair um, at, at the wrong time um, and it just felt like uh, it just made me want to puke <laughs> I didn't um, feel like, like he was coming down on the Rachel Weiss character, by the way. I think that is just a mutually toxic couple. I thought they were both, you know, it's sort of, I mean, it's set in Tennessee. The reason I his, say that is because yeah. the other woman's the same. She's also um, uh, uh, criticised for her choices. The gambling woman, played by Natalie Portman. I mean, she is a gambling addict, right? It's not the best choice. No, but David Strathern um, says, uh, I, I feel like the scenes that you see him and his wife arguing, the scenes that you see him in, he's he comes across as just like, oh, he's just a guy and he's trying to do the right thing. And then later on with Natalie Portman, Natalie Portman um, she goes to the hospital and, and her dad is just a guy trying to do the right thing and just being beset on all sides by women who, you know, have their own minds. Yeah, I think that there is an element of that. I think it's a very... It's really tiring. In Strathern's character, it's a very uh, kind of mythologised portrayal of alcoholism. Uh, like the, the first time you see him, he's like slumped over at the bar and you don't see his face until he has his first close-up and he raises it so slowly. And I genuinely felt it was like a curtain call. I wanted to hear like an audience applauding and throwing roses to him because <laughs> it's, it's just got that feel to it. I mean, if it had been an American sitcom, that would have happened. <laughs> He's not. Ooh, yeah, all right, Strathern. <laughs> <Woo>! <laughs> Yes, absolutely. <laughs> enter Strath enter Strathern, stage left. <laughs> I don't know. I felt like those segments at least had the kind of atmosphere that I think my main problem with the film is that the wraparound segment with Jude Law just doesn't work for me. I don't find this a convincing environment. I don't believe in no. his connection with Norva Jones's character at all. Or, it's... or 
who puts those keys in that jar either. I completely agree. I don't believe that he remembers the stories of everybody play, placing a key in that jar. Come on, it's Jude flipping law. He just <laughs> got through a, like a, a raft full of ladies in the meantime. You know, he doesn't remember them all. Come on. I, I wanted there to be a bit where Lizzie said, so is anything in this diner not a metaphor? Yeah, exactly. And when he was talking about that story, it just, it just didn't sit well on my stomach at all. I just thought he wouldn't talk like that. It wouldn't be. And that sort of made me wonder whether that was a, an intersection of cultures that didn't quite come across. I don't know whether that be something that would work better in the circumstances of his origin country or whether he'd kind of really argued for that to be in place in this film but it just wasn't going to come off it's funny that yeah most Wonka Y films take place in this very kind of heightened romantic world that allows you to look at the characters within inverted commas like if if Fei Wong's character from Chunking Express was a real person you'd call the cops. She is absolutely a stalker. I don't care what anyone says. But, you know, within the context of the film, you're aware that there's something slightly off about her, but you suspend judgment because it's not a realistic, primarily realistic film. And I just feel like that is such a hard tone to strike that it's almost self-defeating it to do it in a culture that isn't yours. It is. And once you've got the right glasses on, you can sort of see through things like that. And you it's it, it's such a judgment call, like in any in any play, in any film, you're asked to suspend disbelief. Um, it's just how far you push your audience to do that. And I, I think that it can sometimes run into real problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I felt that, that during this whole show. I mean, what saves it is his really creative cinematography, which is beautiful. And I love the saturated colours and I love, you know, the metaphor for things moving on and being transient. And um, yeah, nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful work of art in that respect. It's a gorgeous looking film. It's his first with uh, Darius Congi as cinematographer. And it's notable because before he was like almost attached at the hip to um to Christopher Doyle the Australian cinematographer and I think I I think it's great when filmmakers have a close collaboration with a cinematographer or an editor or someone behind the scenes like that but you know there are people who saw Doyle's other work and saw that it has that same color palette and sort of wanted to take the credit away from Kawai but I think looking at his work with Darius Conchie here, who's also a great cinematographer, but a very different Wanda Doyle, you right. can see that actually a lot of Kawai's style is Kawai. Mm, cool. I'm a big fan of sort of saturated colours, I think. And it's sort of the way they bleed into each other. And it's just the whole transience of the piece. I really like that idea of travel and not, sort of being able to put down roots and things popping in and out but that unfortunately doesn't make for a a robust structure no absolutely not no and I think by the time you've got into the last half hour 
you just want there to be some closure. Like I, I don't think the Natalie Portman section is bad, but I couldn't get invested mm. in it because I just didn't want to meet another cast of people by that stage. Mm. I don't, I liked her character. I thought she was nice and ebullient, but um... I think she's not bad in this too. And this was at yeah, the height. I still was. Yeah, I do like her. I think she's good in this, but um, again, I wasn't massively convinced by the storyline, really. Yeah, and I I think this was at the height of the time where I had a few problems with Portman. I thought she was very sort of fidgety and affected in a lot of her uh, work, but I think she's fine in this, actually. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think she's really strong. She's She's not twitchy. She's a lot more forceful as a character I think. absolutely yeah it's it's internal acting which is you know much far preferable to I know this is a reference that about three other people will get but good god what she was like in Paris Chatem bloody hell um <laughs> again no it's not going to be something that everyone <laughs> relates to but it still haunts my nightmares <laughs> I've got that sitting downstairs and it's been there for a while. <laughs> I have not watched it yet. Some of it's great. It's, you know, it's like every anthology film. It's a curate's egg. Um, there's a great yeah. Sylvain Chomet film about uh, a, a tragic warning about our prejudice against mimes. Uh, that's fantastic. But... Justified. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> Mime. <laughs> at the bottom of the artistic community justifiably you would absolutely be on that village council in hot force wouldn't you yes i would yes <laughs> yes i would <laughs> so yeah the script i thought was um pretty turgid as well and i wanted i couldn't remember who it was that i was i'd seen a script by somebody and is it is is it Zack Snyder? No, it's not Zack Snyder. It's somebody who is the son of somebody and is 20 and has churned out scripts and thinks that he's got into Hollywood on merit. Oh, shit. Max Landis, then. I mean, yes. don't, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people in Hollywood like that, but there's no one quite like Max Landis. Yeah, I know. And I've seen, like, I've, I've seen his writing previously and, oh... Parts of this film made me think, who wrote this? Who wrote this? Somebody with no bloody experience of life whatsoever who thinks that that's, you know, the phrases that these people are uttering are somehow true to life. And I felt like, you know, periodically somebody should hold up a notice going, message, did (laughs) you get the message? Do you understand what I'm saying here? I'm being symbolic. The the diner scenes are absolutely like that, yeah. And I think part of the problem, again, is you've got this clash of tones that whatever Carwai thought he was doing, I think part of the problem is that his co-writer is Lawrence Block. And Block is not a bad writer. He's actually a very good novelist, but a very good writer of hard-boiled crime stories. It's not an ideal collaborator in this context no it? his kind of i think both him and kawaii are not realist writers which is fine but yeah. block's form of anti-realism and kawaii's form of anti-realism just do not gel no 
Um, I think at one point, um, Nora Jones's character says, I've always been fascinated by card players. And so, wh since when? Like, since about two minutes ago. <laughs> when? Where's this come from? You know, That's, that made me think that the actual core writer of the script was Louis Theroux, because the only person I've ever come across who has that sort of, I've always been fascinated by insert literally anything here is Louis Theroux. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. But it was the, interesting that the in in terms of selfhood and becoming, mm -hmm. I thought um I felt like she needed to go on this journey and I, I didn't get much of a sense of why. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I didn't get the impetus for her going on the journey was particularly strong, but I understood that she went on this journey and she chose a different name in every location, some variety of Elizabeth, whether it was Betty, Lizzie, Beth. I can't, she was Betty at one point. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and, in, you know, it's all about finding yourself and hitting the road and all that business, which is a very American road movie thing to do so maybe that was you know something that had been seen from afar and you know this is what americans do um yeah i thought that was an appropriate thing to do but you're right for identity that, but you're right that it isn't set up i think the main no. thing we know about lizzie after the first scene of the film is that she has recently had a relationship breakup and she has no yeah. particular objection to blueberry pie. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, basically. And for an actress in a Hollywood movie to even see her eating, <laughs> genuinely eating, is remarkable. Have you seen The Ghost Story by David Lowery? Uh, maybe. There is that famous scene in it where Umi Mara just sits down and eats an entire pie and you wait and watch as she eats literally the entire pie. And it's... Uh, and she's I mean, like this. Yeah, it's technically a stunt. They probably had yes. to get like insurance coverage for this. Yeah, how many takes did that take? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I remember, what was that thing that I saw? Because I'm a big fan of, I love Drew Barrymore. It's just very easy watching and it's, uh, she's a good comedian, uh, comedian. Um, mm. And what did I see her in? The one where she's Josie Grossy. Oh, Never Been Kissed. Yes, it's the sweetest film. And she goes back to school and then she goes to this party and afterwards she, she accidentally has some weed and afterwards eats a large amount of cake and she just genuinely ate it. And it was, it was great to see. It was really good to see you just like, yes, I've been there. I've had those afternoons. <laughs> I am reminded of when Olivia Coleman was on the Oscar campaign trail for the favorite. And she was talking about the weight she put on for that film. And okay. I think everyone was expecting her to sort of talk about it in intense methody sort of christian bale terms you know <laughs> i was great i just sat down and i ate a lot of cake and i didn't do any exercise for two months it was brilliant <laughs> she did have to really sort of stuff the cake in in that didn't she she did Aww. yes although most of it came back up so i guess it's probably evens right oh, oh that poor woman she had a lot to go through Mm. Apart from being royal and very rich. Yes. <laughs> I, th 
think what did you think about you know when during this film and the film pacing like I don't know whether well it's in the editing process and it takes on an interesting pace mm. it's kind of staccato for a bit when people tend to be on their own in the frame what what do we think about that I uh, firstly I found that pretty effective but I also wonder whether part of it is because the version of this that screened at the Cannes Film Festival, which was the premiere, was about 15 minutes longer. And part of me wonders whether that was maybe, you know, part of the sacrifice that was made. There was apparently a whole bit in it. I don't know whether it was cut, cut at script stage or whether they filmed any of it, but there was a whole bit of it that was going to be set in New Orleans. And Kawai was talking that up as, as if it was going to be his next kind of domino project. Oh, I cut the New Orleans bit, but I'm going to make it into my next film. And then <laughs> the reception to this made him think, oh, I could go back to Hong Kong. I could do that as well. Um, I think that was that for me was a bit annoying. Right. It felt like it was it happened so frequently and I couldn't really see the point of it. I don't know whether it was faster or slower. Oh, you mean the the kind of the step printing thing he did where you see your movement as almost like a series of still frames? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know what the point of it was. It's just part of his style, I think. I think he has used it very effectively in the past, but in my blueberry nights, there's a bit where they use this for a shot of someone opening, then closing a door. Um mm which I think is overdoing. Yeah, that was an, yeah, it was. And I was trying to figure out what he was trying to draw attention to, though. It was something about, I, I wonder if it's like, you know, when he said at the beginning, the keys are in the jar. If I throw these keys away, those doors will be closed forever. Oh, yeah, yeah, maybe. Make me want to puke. Um, because no no Jude Law character of that age would ever remotely say such a thing. <laughs> yeah. if, it's, if it's somebody who's like, you know, an older person, maybe I can agree with that. Um, but maybe that was sort of a depiction of what he meant, somebody who was kind of reluctant to close a door, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. Um, yeah, I find that very, I found that very stylish on the big screen but when you watch it on streaming you do sort of think oh shit this is buffering <laughs> yeah I liked I liked that I liked the fact that it was unusual in a film and it seemed to be saying something I wish it was saying something better <laughs> <laughs> I did quite like it as an idea as an idea as a director as a direction and editing an idea um yeah so the main and also no so yeah. sorry carry on no no carry on well the main thread we haven't pulled on so far is norma jones we haven't really yeah. talked much about norma jones yeah i don't feel like she's an actor i feel like obviously this is her first film i'm guessing i think yes. it was yeah Didn't I yeah read that? yeah so and i think she's still very uh, maybe he wanted her to be like really naturalistic and very sort of as she would be quite an experienced kind of an ingenue mm. um i think sometimes the things that she's trying to convey about you know identity aren't aren't really coming across but then again maybe she's not supposed to be a particularly deep character she's like 
footloose and fancy free she sort of dips in and out of out of people's lives she doesn't have any major reactions to things um and when she she's supposed to be crying at one point but it's not very convincing so we kind of slow it down and mm. you know make it more moody uh, because it's not convincing at normal speed <laughs> yeah yeah i know what you mean um yeah. Carl Y was a big fan of Nora Jones's music and suggested, and mm. boy, you're, you're, yeah, we're going to get to the heart of the problem here, I think, suggested that because she was such a natural, uh, she should not take any acting lessons before she did this, which, yeah, yeah. Good, good plan paid off. <laughs> yeah, I read that and I thought they're two very, very different art forms. Yeah. I think. You can't just magically become a, a great film actor just because you've written some and sung some really great quality songs. I mean, the irony is that Nora Jones hates being on camera so much. She even hates doing music videos. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a shame. And she does look so young in this. Yeah, she does, actually. I don't know that... This is how I always think of Nora Jones because I haven't particularly followed her career. So the way she looks in this when she like just had her breakthrough with Come Away With Me is just my picture of what she looks like. So that I didn't really think about that. Mm, that album is so beautiful. Honestly, it's a lovely, it's a particular mood and you have to be in a particular mood to listen to it. And it's, it's a real, really comforting, lovely, warm, soulful album. It's beautiful. Um, but to see her in this where there's nothing deep at all mm. is quite a contrast. I think it's kind of part of the problem is maybe having a novelist as your co-writer, because in a novel, it's very easy to have a viewpoint character who just observes things, and that can be fine. You know, there are yeah. many great books that work like Which is that. her character. Yeah. yeah, that is absolutely it. But yeah. in a film, you need to have a lead character who does something to win the audience's sympathy. Yeah. Yeah, it's not just an observer. Um, yeah, and... She's this a similar kind of artist, I would argue, to Wong Kar Wai in that she, in her own environment, she just flourishes like you know the the Plant. most. Which plant's it going to be this time? Orchid. Orchid. <laughs> the most beautiful kind of like flower, and um, uh, maybe an African violet, just because it's <laughs> it's much more soft and like almost like a plant that if you could hug you it would hug you and it's deep rich colors um and uh i don't i don't if he's if i don't know why he would collaborate with a hard-boiled detective novelist writer it's quite why weird isn't it i mean some of his caring. some of his hong kong films particularly fallen angels have that kind of vibe but this doesn't so you know Mm. It's it's just the, yeah, the wrong match of people in general, I think. Yeah, and a lot of it can just depend on who's available at the time, and you don't have the ideal circumstances, and I can only assume that maybe that's what's happened here. 
I think that he probably had his pick of collaborators because his stock was very, very high by the mid-2000s, but it's just... I don't know, maybe there's just some sort of cultural barrier where he couldn't see that the story he was doing was not a story that block skills were transferable to, that you can't have these lovelorn diner patrons talking like, you know, alcoholic detectives all the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's uh, my blue green ice. Do you have any any other thoughts, any other flowers that you haven't used? <laughs> um, I, I would like to sort of highlight uh, Try a Little Tenderness by Otis Redding, which kept propping, uh, popping up endlessly. Yeah. And and I, I thought it was overused. And also when it was when it was happening, I was thinking, I, I know it's not going to, but I really want Jay-Z to kick in at some point <laughs> you know, sounds so soulful don't you agree and it didn't I was just like no <laughs> it's just even more things just I'm missing from this film <laughs> I suppose I was less bothered by that because I know Wong Kar Wai does like to use needle drops as kind of a running motif most famously like if you watch Chunking Express you will never need to hear California Dreaming by the Mamas and Papas ever again in your life oh, I yeah. promise you that but does it does he get a bit obsessed with it throughout the film yeah, yeah, definitely. His, in fairness, his ca the character who plays it is obsessive as well, so there's a, a meaning for it to keep cropping up there. But Sarah, I put it to you, who was ever disappointed to hear you try a little tenderness one more time? Yeah, I know, and it's a fantastic, it's a phenomenally great song, but I don't, I don't, wanna, I don't want it to be the only song in a soundtrack, and at one point it felt like it, it might be the only song that they were going to play for the rest <laughs> of the film. I thought, please change the tune, change the tune. <laughs> um, another thing I was going to say was um, both Rachel Weiss and Nora Jones seem to have a problem getting hair out of their face. And at one point, I thought this has got to be an artistic choice because every, every bloody shot with them. And it's just like this long lingering shot with like hair down here. And she's like, they can't even, you know, it's, get Veronica Lake in or something. But this is just <laughs> annoying. Just get the hair out of your face. It's ridiculous. You can't see. This is a directorial choice. This isn't the actors. And I don't know any woman who wouldn't go, oh, fucking hell. <laughs> I suppose it's particularly problematic for Jones's character because she drives. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, tricky, tricky. <laughs> and also, I think the big thing that needs to be addressed is the weirdness. And I don't know whether I don't know whether you necessarily notice this, but maybe I, I would think that you probably would notice that this um, a, a woman and she's asleep. Oh, fucking hell, yes. Yeah, weird, yeah. right? Yeah, weird. absolutely, yeah. Okay, so she's she falls asleep on the bar. She's had pie, so obviously it's, it's sleepy nap nap time. Um, and she falls asleep on the bar, and he kisses her. And But more than that, she's got, like, pie all over her face and, like, yeah. cream on the pie all over the face, and he licks that off. And then later on, I think the same sort of thing happens, is it? 
And it's, it's just filth. It's pure filth. <laughs> it made me wonder whether one car why would find like an issue of the Bash Street Kids featuring Fatty to be similarly erotic because he often ends up in that situation, doesn't he, with pie all over his face? Yeah, and I think it does. You know, nowadays probably not in two thousand and seven, but probably nowadays it would they would have issues of consent. I mean, she does seem to sort of come around a little bit in the second instance of this happening. Um, but it she just, comes around and kisses him back, which I think even if the yeah. person kissing you while you're asleep is Jude Law, I don't think many women would be as sublimely untroubled by that. Yeah, so it, yeah, it's a bit sort of questionable now. Yeah, um, and the shots of the blueberry pie, you get like you get actual slow mo shots of blueberry pie. And, and I feel like that's kind of, you know, being brought out as like the link of romance and sex and food and mm. the sort of sensuality of that. No, and yeah, definitely. <laughs> you're getting shots of this beautiful blueberry pie and the luscious fruit on the, uh, on the inside and the great pastry. And then suddenly like this sort of <laughs> the drips of cream fall on it. And <laughs> that's the filth of this film. That's filthy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was probably not necessary, and it, and it just felt like, oh, come on, one car, we're not, we're not twelve. Yeah, I remember those shots of pie looking fantastic when I saw it on the big screen, but watching it like super compressed on Jeff Bezos's hell site uh, did. <laughs> It gave it a sort of weird body horror air, didn't it? it this would be a good yeah. opening credits for one of those comedy horror films that begins with shots of something that looks like you know mashed up intestines and then pulls out, aha, it's something different. Uh, yeah, it, it wasn't as mouth-watering on a small screen, I thought. <laughs> So in summation, um, would you sort of say this is, could you recommend this film for anything? I mean, I think if you're a Car Y fan, there's plenty of stuff that's of interest here. I think some of the supporting performances, particularly Weiss and Strathairn, are really strong and seem to get the vibe that the material should have more perhaps than anyone behind the camera could. But if you're going to like go into his work for the first time, for the love of God, watching the mood for love rather than this, that is a much better entry point. Mm. Yeah, also, I, definitely I listen to that Cat bit. Power album. Oh yeah, Cat Power. Yeah, um, yeah. I need to watch that and um, Chunking Express, don't I? Because I've not seen anyone Kawaii. Um, and if if there's other people out there who's this is their first introduction to it, they're gonna just go, yeah, maybe I won't. But according to you, we should. You should press on. Yeah, I don't know. Like even with this being an English language debut and that being traditionally a play for a broader market, I don't know. I can't imagine even Nova Jones fans like going to this instead of. Uh, Chunking Express or Fallen Angels or something, or Happy yeah. Together. Happy Together's Brill. Okay. Okay, so I'll make a note of them. Um, uh, but I, I think this probably isn't, uh, unless you're a super fan, it's probably a not, not a great place to stay. It is not great, and I, I think, you know, 
the failure of it is kind of a shame, but there is some sort of parallel universe where one Kawhi spends the rest of his career in America, and I don't want to live in that universe, so maybe it's for the best. Yeah, indeed. He's a delicate flower. He is. Of many different species. Many. And trees. Yeah. <laughs> So listeners, if you enjoyed what you just heard, we have a Patreon where you can get a monthly bonus episode as well as exclusive access to our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, uh, my twice-weekly Doctor Who reviews, and much, much more. That's all at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show. But until next week, I've been Graham. And I've been Sarah. And we'll see you for more pop screen next week. Bye.